I am talking about stopping type 1 diabetes, and uh, we'll, we'll start by, by, by looking at the premise that if we really want to stop type 1 diabetes, our ideal therapeutic goals would be to stop the immune destruction of beta cells, to preserve beta cell mass as best we can, and potentially to have beta cell replacement regeneration. And if we look at the natural history of the disease, we're born with functioning beta cells at their capacity. And in those individuals who are destined to develop the disease, there is a genetic predisposition. More accurately, it's genetic predisposition outweighing genetic protection. And you can see that there's been a, there's been a lot of work on the genetics of type 1 diabetes. And the principal uh, place where, where we find that genetic predisposition is in, in the HLA region. Here you can see the, the, the high risk that you can get identified in that region. But there's a lot of other genes involved, genes surrounding the, uh, uh, in the planting region, surrounding the insulin gene, uh, PTPN22, and, and a host of others. And on the slide, they're colored because if they involve if the genes that are related to diabetes, this is by uh, genome-wide association studies, uh, you see them in blue if they relate to the immune system potentially. You see them in, in yellow if they re potentially relate to areas of insulin production and metabolism. In green, uh, related to potential beta cell apoptosis. And there's some that are just not known what the function might be, but, but one can imagine them playing a role. But notice something. Here is one as a risk, and here's 1.25. Most of them have a very trivial, you know, there's an association. It's a relatively trivial effect. And we do not yet know how to put that in perspective. It probably ultimately will play a role as we personalize therapy in the long run, but yet we don't know how to do it at this juncture. What we do focus on is the HLA region. And, and we know that particular, particularly within class two, there's, there's particular uh, alleles, DQA1301 and B1302 together with DR4, which has tremendous predisposition, high risk, and that combination of those has been called DQA. And the other one is, is DR3 in conjunction with DQA10501 and DQB10201, and that's been called D, uh, DQ2 as the other major predisposing one. But, you know, there's subtleties here. Here is DR4 30, 0301, 0301. And if you have an 0301 here, instead of an 0302, it's neutral. So there are subtle differences. And then the protective one is DR2 together with 0102 and 0602, which has been called DQ6. But if this were 0502, it would be more predisposing. So lots of subtleties in there. We don't understand all of the details of that. And, and it still needs uh, more, uh, more work to look at. So in the genetically predisposed individual then, what we think happens uh, is that there's an environmental trigger that initiates the sequence of events which eventuates in diabetes. And you know, we think it's an environmental trigger and not genetics because if you actually look at, at populations that keep good records of incidence rates per 100,000, there's, there's at least five of them which show a, a dramatically increasing risk of the disease over the last few decades, too soon for genetics to be playing a role. And so we think it's some environmental factor, but it's not clear what that is. Uh, and people have proposed that it's enteroviral or other viral infections, perhaps bacteria, perhaps alterations in infant feeding, 
uh, or inadequate breastfeeding or other environmental toxins, or perhaps less exposure to pathogens or parasites like worms that may have been activating the immune system and, and being able for more protection, the so-called hygiene hypothesis. And we're not sure. The, the Teddy study is underway to try to look at several thousand babies from, from the time they're born, who are at high risk genetically, from the time they're born up until the time they develop diabetes to see if there are differences in this. But uh, at the moment, we can't point to anything certain. So once that putative environmental trigger occurs, it initiates an immune response. And we, we usually believe that to be T-cell mediated autoimmunity. Uh, which results in insulitis and beta cell injury. Uh, and, and what that does is it initiates this process of, of, of law, progressive loss of beta cell function. And with the, with the beta cell injury, there are components of the beta cell which are exposed to the immune system and antibodies form. We can measure those. And most people believe, although I'm not sure it's 100% clarified, that the antibodies really reflect the damage rather than mediate the damage. Uh, and there's very little to say that, that either in animal models or in human beings that they, they mediate the damage, but uh, in theory, I suppose they could. And it turns out that, uh, these are data from GPT-1, that if you have uh, more antibodies, you go from zero to one to two to three to four, this is 100% free of diabetes, you follow them over time, you have a greater likelihood of progression when you have more antibodies and or when those antibody titers are higher. That paper hopefully will soon be accepted. Uh, it's under its fourth revision. <laughs> trying to meet all the reviewers' little uh, tidbits, but we think it's, it's, it's tighter and, uh, and antibody number. But, uh, but here's an interesting component of that. If you take in three populations that have looked at it, babies, from birth, who have high genetic risk of type 1 diabetes, and you follow them over time, many of them will develop antibodies. Uh, and when, from the time they develop antibodies, if you continue to follow these babies who were identified by higher genetic risk, from the time they develop antibodies, time zero, and you follow for the next two decades, essentially 100% of them will develop type 1 diabetes. And that, these are the three populations broken down. This is the, the sum of the three. Uh, this paper is from, from collaboration from a group of Colorado and Germany is also struggling to get past the reviews. Uh, but, but I think it's very, uh, very provocative that it means that, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot, I showed you with the, with the multiple antibodies a moment ago. Here, you know, we're talking about five-year risks and 10-year risks, but if you really go out, two decades, they're all going to get the disease. These people are really at high risk. Yes, maybe. It's a cohort of only baby, i.e. early seroconverters. I mean, you know that the rate would be the same if you have a group who seroconverted and older. Yeah. All of these babies seroconverted, uh, for the most part, by age six or seven, and when they're going to follow another 20 years. There may be people who seroconvert late. It's hard to say. You know, in, in, in DPT-1 in Toronto, we did basically a cross-sectional analysis. There are relatives who come in, and we find antibodies, and, and then if we have them come back for rescreening, the rate of conversion is re actually relatively low. And 
we're not, I'm not actually sure whether it's a true rate of conversion or whether it's assay sensitivity uh, and variation from time to time. So it, it's, it's a tough question with regards to that. And whether you really serial convert late in life or whether you maintain your serial conversion from early on is a controversial issue. It would be good to sort out. Is it, I mean, if it really is that everybody who's going to serial convert does so early in life, I mean, that's where you could develop prevention from very early on, I think. And that's, that's really a, a direction that we need to be thinking about more and going. Okay, so now we've got the antibodies, and the next thing we, 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 we look for are metabolic changes as, as a consequence of this loss of beta cell function. And the first thing that's detectable is if you give an intravenous glucose challenge, you lose the first phase insulin secretion. Those of you who are familiar with type 2 diabetes may appreciate that the first metabolic abnormality of type 2 diabetes is also a loss of first phase insulin response. And so that may be how the beta cell is responding to injury as much as anything else. And, and then if you follow them further and you do an oral glucose tolerance, that's, they'll get dysglycemia. And dysglycemia predicts the development of diabetes pretty well. This is again data from, from DPT1 and that subjects with dyslysemia have a 75 to 80% chance of developing a disease in five years. 100% free, here you're down to only 10, 20% free of the disease. And dyslysemia here is either impaired glucose tolerance or loss of, uh, or, or impaired fasting glucose or what's been called indeterminate glucose tolerance. That's a term that was proposed in 1979 uh, in the National Diabetes Data Group definitions of diabetes, and then was dropped subsequently. And, and uh, what it is, is that when the blood glucose is over 200, at 30, 60, or 90 minutes during the glucose tolerance test, that's indeterminate. And that's because if you're over 200 at two hours, you have diabetes. These people don't have it at two hours, but they do have it in between. The problem is the World Health Organization and then the, uh, all the authorities said, well, all you got to measure is zero and two hours to diagnose diabetes. You want the fasting and you want the two hour. And, and if you follow the, the guidelines that they put out for diagnosis of diabetes with a glucose challenge, you don't measure it at 30, 60, and 90. But we do in DPT-1 that, And it turns out that that is predictive in type 1, at least of developing the disease. And so it's part of this overall dyslexemia. And you can see that people who otherwise we, we were, were being looked at and, uh, and followed, here's the ones who had normal glucose tolerance, here's the ones who had the others, and you can see they, they do progress to the disease uh, rather dramatically. Now, so the question is, what's responsible for these glucose abnormalities, loss of first phase and so forth? And we've tried to look at that from a mechanistic standpoint together with uh, uh, Andrea Mari and, uh, and Ellie Farinini from your home country, uh, you know. And, uh, what we found was that if you took people in DPT-1 who developed diabetes over time and those who didn't, um, and you, here were the people who never converted to developing diabetes when they were screened in the heavy blue line, and the, not, and, and the last time they were followed about three years later is here, and they didn't really change. And this is really basically a normal response to glucose. This is the way the beta cell <coughs> senses glucose and then appropriately secretes insulin. And Dan Port used to always say that the major defect in diabetes is the pilot cell is the beta cell is blind to glucose. It doesn't. It, the glucose can be there, but it doesn't respond. And in fact, the people who ultimately converted to diabetes had a curve that was reduced in its sensitivity of the beta cell to glucose, 
And when you look at them, at just before they developed diabetes, it was lost even more. So perhaps this is reflecting a functional damage to baby cells. And, and I think that's crucial uh, in thinking about it. And that, damage, that, that can be picked up. This glucose sensitivity begins to be seen about a year before you see a, a rise in plasma glucose. And so it's an early predictor of that. It's the beta cell already being injured. And, and that's why on this slide, it used to be for years, based on George Eisenbach's model, everybody said beta cell mass here. And I've changed it to beta cell function because it may not be that we're losing beta cell mass completely, but that the immune damage is functionally impairing the beta cells. And that may mean that we could potentially resurrect them with some interventions. And that's something we've got to think about, too. But as we progress in time metabolically, you then develop the clinical onset of type 1 diabetes. And so when you look at that kind of sequence, we have a number of places we could intervene to stop the disease process. We could do it at the time of diagnosis to try to preserve C-peptide and beta cell function. We could do it during dysglycemia, the loss of first phase insulin, multiple antibody positive individuals, even single antibody positive individuals, or those who are genetically at risk. And in fact, studies have been done or are proposed at each and every one of those places along the way. And, you know, when you look back and you say, well, if I'm starting back here, I sure want to not give anything that's going to be dangerous to the patient because they may not develop diabetes for, well, they're genetically at risk for more than 20 years. And, but if they're here, you might be more willing to give them something that has you know, potential risk associated with it as long as the benefit is clearly outweighing this. And so it's always a difficult decision because the things that are more likely to work may also carry with them some risk, but it may very well be that in order to really work, you've got to get back early before you've had significant damage to beta cells. Uh, a vexing question that we struggle with all the time. Okay, so TriMet, you all here are part of that, and uh, it's it's crucial. But what we thought about in TriMet is, is this is a cartoon adapted from one that Jeff Bluestone did, but, but modified, um, of the immunopathogenesis of type 1 diabetes, what it is is that beta cell antigens are presented by professional antigen presenting cells, either dendritic cells, macrophages, to the immune system in the context of the major histocompatibility complex and recognized by a naive T cell by a T cell receptor. And then that, that naive T cell if activated in terms of causing damage, becomes a T effector cell. It could also go down the pathway to become a T regulatory cell that might be specific for this antigen. And that could come into balance with the effector cells. And that balance is crucial in terms of what happens. And then the damage is mediated either directly by the T effector cells or through cytokines, uh, interferon gamma, IL2 beta, and the like that, that can cause the beta cell damage. Now, in addition, though, to the signal of activating the T-cell receptor, in order for the naive T-cell to be activated, you also need post-stimulation, interaction between other molecules on the surface, CD28 on the naive T-cell, CD8086 on the, uh, the energy-presenting cell to get the full activation. And we've thrown in here, too, that the B lymphocyte may provide help to all of this as well. And I say that because we've chosen interventions to try to intercede at a number of those time points. So if you put them up here, the potential targets, you could go back to the antigen itself and say you want to present the antigen in a different context. Oral antigens across a mucosal barrier may favor regulatory T cells and protective immunity. Uh, 
given GAD vaccine um, may, uh, has been proposed to help. You could try to, to, uh, to block the naive T cell with NICD3 or clamoglobulin. You could try to block co-stimulation with a co-stimulation blocker like abatacept. You could try to block the B cell help with, uh, with uh, a monoclonal antibody directed against that, such as anti-CD20, rituximab. You could try to block the, uh, the cytokines with an anti-IL-1 or anti-TNF. You could try to stimulate the T-regular cells with IL-2. There's a number of approaches that you could take to try to, to modulate the system. And so what I would like to do is summarize, particularly the ones that have shown some potential benefit. I'll list all the ones that, that haven't. But, uh, but the ones that have shown potential benefit, and I think this was done while Kevin was here, uh, was to use the anti-CD3 uh, monoclonal antibody and in a paper that was first in the New England Journal in 2002 for the one-year data and the two-year data followed in diabetes. And what, what he found is he looked at the area that occurred for C-peptide with, uh, with a meal challenge, and it was pretty stable over the first year, whereas the comparison group was declining progressively. But then in the second year, the, the treated group declined in parallel to the comparison group. So there was a transient effect, and appreciate that he only gave the monoclonal antibody for 14 days at the time the patient was enrolled. So a very short course here, but prolonged beneficial effect because even though this is declining in parallel, they remain quite apart, including the confidence intervals that are shown up. Another monoclonal antibody, uh, this one developed by Herman Waldman in the UK and, and studied by a group in Europe, uh, Otolixuzumab, showed the same kind of thing. It appeared a few years later in that same journal. And what they found, that they, they didn't do a, a mixed meal challenge test. They did it more, a little bit more complicated. They did a hyperglycemic clamp and finished the clamp uh, with, a, with a glucagon challenge. And this is the C-peptide response there. You'll notice it goes up initially in the treated group. And then it begins to fall in parallel to the other group. But by a year, it's still at baseline, similar to what Kevin showed. And by 18 months, the curves are still wide apart. And this was only a six-day <coughs> course of drug in the beginning. And in fact, they, they had a subsequent paper. The patients, because it was a, a long-term follow-up, and patients weren't initially consented to have this hyperglycemic clamp again and again, they brought the patients back in at four years. They didn't do clamps then, but they did find that although the A1Cs were identical in the two groups, the treated group was using much less insulin. And inferred that might mean they don't the same. So six days of treatment, long-term outcome. We at TrauMet did uh, use an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody rituximab, which attacked B lymphocytes, and you'll notice that for the first six, and this was a uh, four infusions at a week apart over the first month, and you'll notice that at three and six months, this was sustained, and then it fell in parallel to the. Um, uh, to the control group. And in fact, the curves remained a part of two years uh, in that paper that is also undergoing its fourth review. Uh, <laughs> some of these take a long time to get into press. But. Anyhow, and then uh, we used also in trauma the, uh, the co-stimulation blocker, uh, Abitasia. And although it didn't sustain function, the, the function declined progressively. It always remained statistically apart from the uh, uh, from the placebo group, doing better. 
In this study, rather than the short courses that you receive in the other ones, they got the, uh, the abatacept for two full years, and the curves remain apart. And in a paper that the reviewers just last night said, maybe ready, almost, <laughs> one more revision. Uh, uh, at, at three, years after, the three years after you stop the drug at two years, uh, the, that, that effect seems to be sustained and persists beyond the drug. But there is a progressive decline overall, uh, suggesting that maybe if you're going to block co-stimulation, you really need to do that early on before the presentation, and so or early in the course, and so we're now trying to look at that in a prevention mode. Ones that didn't work in trauma, this is uh, the GAD vaccine. Many of you may remember there was a paper in the New England Journal in 2008 which suggested this worked, at least in the subgroup. Actually, it didn't work for its primary endpoint, but it did work for the area under the curve. Uh, but in the subgroup that it worked, it was really only 11 patients on drug and six on placebo. Uh, and you, you have to be very careful with small numbers in drawing a conclusion. Uh, here we, we had 149 people enrolled, and you can see that two treatment groups and the uh, control group were, were basically the same. And the investigators from the original study actually subsequently had a paper showing that it didn't work either when they did large numbers. So it's unfortunate because in theory, it would have been nice. Um, but you know, a number of problems. This was GAD, al alum as an adjuvant as a subcutaneous vaccine. Uh, lots of studies in the mouse showing that GAD worked. None of them were delivered subcutaneous, and none of them had an adjuvant that was given orally, nasally, or intraperitoneally when it worked in the mice. So was it that there was an adjuvant? Was it that it was subcutaneous? Was it it wasn't early enough? Because in the mice it prevented the disease here when we were trying to stop the disease? Tough questions. Uh, here's another one which just appeared online uh, a week or so ago uh, that Tromad did. This was using the anti-IL-1 beta monoclonal antibody canakinumab. Uh, and again, disappointing results. Um, you know, maybe trying to deal with innate immunity at the time of onset of disease is, is not by itself going to work. It may be important if it collaborated with something that's getting uh, adaptive immunity together with, uh, with, with the CD3. That's been shown in animal models to be a great combination that, it, that improves the response to CD3, but by itself, uh, this did not appear to work. Um, nor did Anna Kinner in the same paper, this was a group, uh, a European group, which looked at this, the, the so-called IDA group, uh, and they didn't find an effect either. Um, so two, two disappointing results with looking at uh, anti-IL-1 uh, or blocking the anti-IL-1 pathway. Now here's thymoglobulin. Now one would have thought that since this is blocking the naive T cell activation just like the anti-CD3, it, it should really have the same effect as CD3. But it didn't <clears throat> by its primary endpoint. primary endpoint was what happened in one year. You can see they're overlapping. And Yet there's a problem here because thymoglobulin caused so much cytokine release when it was given that everybody had cytokine release syndrome. And, and um, the question is, could that major cytokine storm have damaged beta cells initially and led to the more rapid decline in the thymoglobulin group than the placebo group? But then once the cytokine storm was over, Maybe it settled down and now you went out like this. 
and what's going to happen in two years? If this continues flat and this continues to decline, maybe in two years there'll be a benefit. We'll know that because the two-year data will be looked at come June. And, you know, it could very well be, and, and I at least speculate that that may very well happen, and that the benefit you have to look at over time, not the primary endpoint here, to gain some clue. And how do you use that information to design future studies at one time or another? Well, you know, lots of studies have been done in new ones that I've been Initially, everybody was enthusiastic about using antigen-based therapies. I mentioned oral insulin and GAD vaccine before. You can see there's a number of studies that have been used. Four GAD studies and three oral insulin studies. And essentially, and I call the GAD pile, even though that subgroup had an effect, it's having no effect overall. An altered peptide ligand uh, from Neurocrine had no effect. Arun uh, Cohen in Israel has championed Diapep 277, a, a, a component of heat shock protein. And there was a paper in The Lancet uh, a decade ago, which uh, in a small number of people seemed to show an effect. Three other papers subsequently failed to show an effect. Uh, and there's one study, uh, one going, that asserts that there might be an effect, but they haven't shown it to be yet, so I call it one going. Um, so antigen-based therapies have been disappointing. In new onset diabetes, I've shown you some of these. Uh, I didn't show you the early cyclosporin studies, which seemed to have a transient effect, but that was abandoned because of the side effects of cyclosporin. I showed you these two anti-CD3 studies, and then there have been a couple other anti-CD3 studies which showed a transient effect as well, a couple that did not work. And the defend one was interesting because it used otolexuzumab, which worked nicely as I showed you back up here in the pilot study which was 80 people, it wasn't a tiny spot, but it was 40 and 40 randomly. So what happened? Well, the big farmer got involved. And when big farmer gets involved, you know, what they want to do is be sure there are no side effects. So they cut the dose, and they ended up giving 1 16th the dose that worked here in this study. Instead of 48 milligrams total, they gave 3 milligrams total. And they did that because they wanted to be sure there were absolutely no side effects. Well, my bias is if you get rid of all side effects, you get rid of all effects, too. Because <laughs> inherently, with all drugs, there's, there's going to be some of each. And, and, and actually, I didn't think it was necessary to do any of that. Now, uh, how do I have the right to say? I actually chaired the data safety uh, committee for the original otolatuzumab study. And we were underwhelmed with side effects. Yes, there was cytokine release syndrome in some people. You know, you get headache, fever, maybe some postural hypotension. On the day that you get the infusion, it was six days worth of infusion, so you could get it for six days. And you have an effect that lasts for four years. Are you willing to put up with a little bit of headache, postural hypotension, fever? I mean, particularly since you can treat those and pre-treat people with uh, uh, antihistamines and, and analgesics. So I didn't think that was a big deal to worry about getting rid of it. The other side effect that was seen and was predicted to be seen when we were when we were when these DSMD was established the very first day before they started the study, we had a bone marrow transplant surgeon who told us that if you give this drug, you're going to have reactivation of EBV virus and people. It's going to occur somewhere around two to uh, two to three months out. It will last a few weeks. Don't worry about it. So we did see that, but since it was predicted and was in the consent form. We didn't think it was a big deal. It did turn out to be transient and you know, not worth paying any attention to, in my view. It was for big pharma, 
And so you can kill a whole approach by misdesigning studies. And I think that is a, a crucial thing that one has to look at these things very subtly when one pays attention to it. A Tanner set was a small study done in Buffalo, only 18 patients, so that's why it looked like it had an effect. And I think it needs to be explored further, potentially. But I put it as a question because I get nervous when there's only 18 patients in the study about drawing a conclusion. Um, Tronet did one with a combination of Celsept and Cuzumab uh, with no effect. I showed you these two, uh, I've shown you, and I've shown you the other three. So that, that's sort of where that stands in new onset diabetes, with one exception. This is a study from Brazil, uh, led by the late Giulio Voltarelli. By the way, there's a great biography of Giulio Voltarelli in online within the last week or so. Uh, he, uh, he died last year, and, uh, uh, unfortunately. And, and he was a, uh, a guy who, who, was, who was willing to do very provocative things. He gave high-dose cyclophosphamide and ATG to people, so much so that he'd wipe out the bone marrow. But he knew he would do that, so he previously harvested the bone marrow and gave an autologous human bone marrow transplant to rescue the, the patient. Uh, from, from that, and, and he, he only, they only did 20 people. And what they followed was, they had no control group, and they followed them here is the, the proportion of people, this is the mean and the, uh, uh, the, the confidence interval, for being free of need of insulin therapy. And they go out three and a half years without needing insulin again. Nothing that anybody has ever done otherwise sees that. Now there's controversies about the study, Controversies, should you be doing something that wipes out the bone marrow of young kids? Controversies that, um, is it clear that they really had type 1 diabetes in all of these patients because they were not as well characterized as one would like? But nonetheless, it's provocative enough to make one say we need to think further about that. And I think it, it raises the question of something that, that, that I think is necessary. We've been doing these therapies that I've shown you as one-off therapies for the most part, and they don't work. And so, do we need to have a combination therapy in nuance of diabetes to make this work? Um, one potential program would be you know, something to stop uh, the innate immune system. I said that the pilot study with anti-TNF, although small, uh, may be it. Anti-L1 beta may be safer uh, and may, in combination, be able to work. Then you come along with something to get the adaptive immune system. These are the three that work that I showed you. Then you might want to give antigen because you want to try to make the recovery of, uh, of Tregs be, be antigen specific, and you could give antigen in one way or, and or another. Then you might want to come along and try to stimulate Tregs as they're recovering after the initial treatment here, or perhaps include infusion of Tregs themselves. That's actually being done now in San Francisco and Yale. And you might want to come along and give something that would help beta cell health. Uh, lots of things. I showed a slide very close to this one uh, at two meetings a couple of years ago. One was a, a, the, uh, the immunology meeting that was at that time in, uh, in Geneva. And mostly immunologists and transplant surgeons, and they looked at this in the comment, was you're not giving enough things to really hit the immune system hard enough. I go the next week to the ATTD meeting in Basel, mostly pediatric diabetes folks, and they look at this and go, oh, I wouldn't give any of that to my kids. <laughs> so depending on the audience, you get different responses to this. Uh, you can draw your own conclusion. But anyway, perhaps what we need to be doing is intervening earlier in the prevention mode. This is an NOD mouse being rescued here from swimming. 
But uh, this is a list of things uh, compiled by Mark Atkinson as of March 2012 that have worked in the NOD mice to be successful. There's 411 on the list. I spoke to him yesterday. He says, yeah, it's probably somewhere around 440 or 450 now, but I haven't done the tabulation for this year yet. But, uh, so it's a huge number. And yet, here's what's been tried in human beings. And, um, you know, in DPT-1, we did parenteral insulin, we did oral insulin, ended did nicotinamide, dipped did nasal insulin. Uh, nasal insulin still being studied in Australia. The trigger study using a casein hydrolysate formula instead of a cow's milk formula is still underway. Nick in Tronet used uh, the pressure, the yeah, I use this omega-3 fatty acid <laughs> that I can't pronounce. But anyway, they're either no effect or ongoing with this little asterisk here, the post hoc analysis of a subgroup. So I like to show this slide, the nicotinamide study, because of, of two reasons. One is, as early as 1948, nicotinamide was shown to block the development of diabetes in a lox and treated rodents. And in every rodent model from 1948 through the 1990s, it, it worked great. And there was some suggestions from, the, from a study in New Zealand that maybe it would work in human beings. But when the study was actually done, the cumulative rate of development diabetes in the nicotinamide group and the placebo group in relatives at risk was superimposable. Unfortunately, it didn't work. The other thing I like about it, I like to show the slide, is they had a great acronym, European Nicotinamide Diabetes Intervention Trial. <laughs> And a great logo was at the end of the rainbow. I, I really thought that part was cool. But you would have studied it work. So at the same time, we were doing the, the DPT-1 study, and we thought that injected insulin would work. We based that on a pilot study of 12 people published in Lancet, five who got the treatment and seven who declined, not randomized. And life table looked great in retrospect. One of the people wouldn't have been out, one of the four who thought about the treatment wouldn't have been eligible because they had protective HLA. And there was an age difference between the groups. So I don't know whether we really, in retrospect, we should look at a week. We did a fully powered 339 patient study, 100% free of diabetes. We wanted people who had greater than 50% five year risk. At five years, 65% had diabetes, but it was true of the treated under control. Unfortunately. And to enroll these 339 people, we had to screen 90,000 relatives find the eligible candidates. And we recognize at the same time, we find people who had 25 to 50% risk, which is good enough to do something. So what did we do? We did the oral insulin study, because present antigen across mucosal barrier in favor of protective immunity. Uh, Howard Weiner in Boston, went, uh, uh, Lloyd Mayer here at, at Mount Sinai in New York, everybody says that, and it certainly works in animals. Uh, and so we tried it, and it worked in the NOD great. You could actually take the spleen cells from the NOD treated with oral insulin and use them to protect other NODs against getting it, uh, induced diabetes. So it really seemed to work, but when you look at the curves, they did have a five-year risk of 35%. We could put them in the right bucket in terms of projected risk, but the two curves were not statistically different. On the other hand, when we did a post hoc analysis, those who had confirmed insulin autoantibodies of at least 80 had a potential delay of four to five years. That's when the statisticians projected both of these lines would reach 50% having diabetes, and you measured the distance between the two lines uh, based on the statistics. It doesn't look like that. They do look different, and the p-value is 0.015, and it's not a small subgroup. 
it's of the 372 people randomized, this is 263 of them. So it's a rather robust sample that would give you hope. And if you go actually to those who have the highest levels of insulin oil antibodies, it projects out to a 10-year delay. And those curves are really wide apart. And that's not a small group either. That's 132 people. So it, you know, given those kinds of post hoc results and subsequent extensive external review, NIH has let trauma to one and say, we're going to repeat the oral insulin study in folks who would meet that criteria and see whether or not we can confirm or refute the post hoc analysis. And so that's being done in TRAMET here at Columbia, as well as the other centers around the country. We're also doing an anti-CD3 prevention study in those who have dysglycemia already. Remember, that's at 80, 75 to 80% five-year risk. And we've just started. First patients just been randomized uh, and have a tacit prevention study in those who have a, a risk in between those seniors. And we hope to soon start a study testing that hygiene hypothesis I, I mentioned using Trichorosuis ova, that's the uh, porcine whipworm, uh, to, which do not develop into worms, but the ova say to people we got uh, in, in human beings. And it's been, it's been tested in a number of other autoimmune diseases, and it looks like it might have benefit, and we want to test it in early diabetes uh, to see if it prevents the further development of antibodies in those who have one. To do that, we, uh, we have our pathway to prevention, and we, we're now screening about 20,000 individuals a year, uh, and uh, you guys are contributing to that in a big way, and those who <coughs> do have patients who don't know how to call uh, Ellen, where are you? Call Ellen <laughs> in particular. But, or you can, you know, from anywhere in the world, you can call our 800 number or, or our website to get folks enrolled. And these are the supporters of, uh, of trauma. Okay, so that's working on the infrastructure. But I said that this is really a trilogy of things. And you also need to try to preserve beta cell mass. Well, maybe stopping the infrastructure and do that. And have beta cell replacement and regeneration. And we've been involved in, in that too. And you can think about beta cell replacement uh, as the, the, the premier example of that that's been done so far is pancreas transplant. And uh, this is a series of several thousand pancreas transplants that were done uh, over this uh, six-year period and then followed out for three years after that, reported in Lancet a number of years ago. These are the people who had simultaneous pancreas kidney grafts. And what's being plotted is freedom of insulin therapy in people with type 1 diabetes. So that's insulin independence over time. That's graft survival. It's a little bit less in those who have the pancreas after the kidney or pancreas transplant alone. We could debate what the reasons for that are, but I'm not going to dwell on that today. I'm just showing you that you get, you know, you get a, a three-year, 75% chance of being free of insulin with a pancreas graft. Then you go to islet grafts, and you know, there people interpret the data in different ways. So this is the clinical islet transplant, uh, collaborative islet transplant registry. And if you look at persistence of insulin independence, what we saw in the last slide, it's really at three years only about 25 to 30%, not 75% for insulin independence. But if you look at it as graph function defined as C-peptide positive, and all these people were C-peptide negative going in, now you're up to about the same level as a pancreas transplant. And the volume of islets in an islet transplant is much less than the volume of islets if you get a pancreas transplant. So it may very well be that this is merely reflecting volume differences over time. But the importance is that, you know, 
depends on whether you're a half, glass half empty or glass half full person. People who look at the glass half empty say, yeah, this is not working. People who look at the glass half full say, it is, and is that important? Well, yes, because the collaborative transplant registry has also pointed out that the, the major reason for doing the auto transplants is recurrence of severe hypoglycemia resulting in seizures and comas in the emergency visit. So if you have recurrent severe hypoglycemia, 75 to 80% of people pre-infusion over, over the six months before infusion had had severe hypoglycemic episodes like that. And here, once they have C-peptide, look what happens. And that's been shown again and again that, that the preservation of intact islands, whether it's because the beta cell is responsible for controlling alpha cell release of glucagon or whatever, I can't give you exactly. But, uh, but clearly, persistent C-peptide has a beneficial effect for these people, even though they are not independent of insulin therapy. And here, the, the, the persistence of rare function, but needing insulin, they've only been three, five, 10 units of lantus a day, not, not full treatment of diabetes. But the problem that you get into, why, are, why is this progressive decline? Is it that we didn't get enough mass in the beginning? Well, here is one provocative observation, and, and my colleagues, uh, Alberto Pugliese and George Burke, have many other patients. But in this biopsy, what you can see is H&E of an islet in here. You've got lots of cells. Uh, if you stain them for glucagon, they stain really robustly. If you stain them for insulin, there's not a drop there. If you stain them for CD3 cells, you can see the, the, the CD3 cells in and around the islet. This is recurrence of autoimmunity because there was no evidence of rejection. And the patients have had simultaneous kidney transplants and there's no evidence of rejection of the kidney. So this is recurrence of the autoimmunity in spite of immunosuppression to stop rejection. Very important lesson to me. Means that the immunologic mechanism responsible for autoimmunity and the immunologic mechanism responsible for rejection require different treatments because rejection was fully controlled. Autoimmunity was not. So although we can take lessons from the transplant field, we can't fully adopt them. But if you're going to do this, pancreas transplants, you know, you're using cadaver donors. How many of them are you going to get here? And how are you going to take care of all people with diabetes? You need a source of cells. And people propose all sorts of things. Animal cells of one kind or another, xenotransplants, various precursor cells or converting cells in and around. And so one possibility is xenotransplantation using pig islets. These are data from Bernard Herring in Minneapolis, uh, who I had lunch with day before yesterday. And uh, this shows pig islets reversing hyperglycemia in non-human primates. The gray area here that goes down is the insulin dose. And then you can see the glucose levels over time. And uh, you know that looks pretty good control with, with pig islets. And he has in a specialized facility free of, of, uh, of porcine uh, viruses and the like, so that you know he's hopefully ready to soon move into clinical trials with this. He's trying to dot all the I's and T's to meet the FDA criteria. Reprogramming of cells is another approach. Uh, these are, are data from Doug Melton's group in, in Boston where he shows that you can you can put transcription factors in and get uh, beta cells to, uh, uh, to, to be promoted in, in rodents. Uh, and the sequence here, if you, if you look at this cartoon, is that we think that, that islet cells are derived 
from ductal cells in the pancreas. The conversion of a ductal cell to an islet cell is neogenesis, and then that proliferates to be a big islet, and eventually may, may undergo apoptosis. Uh, so the question is, can you, can you affect these, uh, these various steps? And, and yes, you can use a whole variety of drugs, things that promote beta cell health, like exenatide and other GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, the so-called islet neogenesis-associated peptide that, that, that Arthur Vinick and Lani Rosenberg have championed for a number of years, and it's human analog HIP2B, whether that really is a substance or not that works, I don't know, but, but I put it on the list because there's data in the literature. And gastrin uh, has been proposed to have some effect on that. And actually, Alex Rabinovich at, uh, in South Dakota has been doing a study using drug, oral drugs that enhance the levels of GLP-1 and gastrin to see whether or not he's going to improve our function. So he's fully enrolled and should report out in the next number of months, so we shall see. And, and these drugs also, at least the, uh, the GLP-1s, may also block apoptosis. So there, there's rationale for using some of that. Transdifferentiation of cells is, a, is another approach. This has been championed by Sarah Ferber in Israel, and um, they take a liver biopsy, they take the, the cells into the laboratory and differentiate them into beta cells, and then we put them back in, and hopefully reverse that. It works great in rodents. She came to Miami and failed in non-human primates, but now she claims that in using human cells, they can, they can make this conversion in the laboratory in vitro, and she's just about to start a study uh, in collaboration with Stephanie Bornstein in Dresden, in Germany, doing this in human beings in, a, in a, an initial phase one study to see whether or not that, that actually works. Human embryonic stem cells, uh, we know the sequence of development of, uh, from, from, from uh, primitive embryonic stem cells to pancreatic precursors and then ultimately the beta cells. This is from a paper by Kevin and Moore uh, a few years ago. And so the question is, can you, could you actually use these kind of cells, starting perhaps with pancreatic precursor cells? And they've actually done that. This is a, a, a comparison of human embryonic stem cell-derived graft after about a year versus human donor islets implanted about a year, both implanted into rodents. I wonder what the animal rights people will say when we're using human cells to cure diabetes in rodents. Uh, <laughs> the reverse of uh, what one thinks about usually, but, but you'll notice if you stain them for insulin, somatostatin, glucagon, they both stay, and you know, they seem to work, and they reverse the diabetes in those, in those animals. And here, if you look at it in, in cross-section, they put it into a device um, that, uh, that protects the islets from being attacked by the immune system, and more importantly, it protects the recipient from some uh, embryonic stem cells going awry and creating a teratumble. Well, they don't see it with their differentiated cells at the moment. Uh, they've taken far enough that they, don't, they haven't seen any uh, in, in multiple experiments, but they, it used to be, and that's been a, uh, an allegation that has been made. But here you can see it uh, in their device, and then here, it, again, stained cross-sectionally for the various substances. And this is a, a continuous glucose monitoring in a rat uh, with their device, that it, that it seems to, uh, uh, put, putting those human stem cells in the device and into rodents does seem to work. They will be finishing this summer their, uh, uh, the, the required toxicology studies for preclinical so that hopefully the beginning of 2014, the FDA will give the green light to try and use some human beings, uh, at least in a in proof of concept study. Um, and what my colleague Camilla Ricordi has been leading is trying to optimize the delivery of cells with a biohub. So that the question is, where do you put the cells? 
and uh, Sherry Stabler and uh, Alice Tome and, and Chris Fraker have been developing various kinds of approaches to do that with a, with a scaffold, which has material which can provide mechanical protection, allow three-dimensional distribution of the islets, and, and have a device that you can put in but also retrieve if necessary. And so it's a platform for modifying the environment. And so here you can see some, some uh, schematics of it and the diameter of the islets that, that it will take. Uh, smaller islets, not the really big ones, and uh, whoops, and that's the saying that the, the islets remain alive in the device, uh, and here you can take that and, and put it in the amenal pouch in a rodent, and here's the insulin dose going down again, and the glucose levels for fasting and postprandial being stabilized, and you can retrieve it from the amenal pouch if, if you need to. Um, this is a schematic of, of what it might look like. You can do various things with it. You can have, for example, localized drug delivery of immunosuppression just locally within the scaffold, so that it doesn't have systemic side effects. You could put in, uh, you could design it with it and develop it in such a way that it, it helps generate oxygen so that the cells stay alive longer. You can put in uh, mechanical protection, encapsulation, or co-delivery of helper cells, such as mesenchymal stem cells. Here's here's scaffold stage for both the mesenchymal stem cells in red and the uh, and the islets. Uh, in, in blue, uh, and you can see that you, know, you, can, you can put them together to try to enhance the effectiveness. You can also try to encapsulate things, and uh, this is nanoscale, layer by layer encapsulation where you dip it in to put one layer on, and then the next layer on, different color, and then it comes out, and that can be uh, conducive to, to, to protecting the islet uh, in a way that, that masks the surface, and uh, others have proposed you could add molecules to the surface. Uh, that might afford protection, such as fast ligating. Um, and so uh, lots of ways one can use this kind of approach to trying to, to look at this. And, and that's what we're working on. This is the team that, that works on it uh, and includes biomedical engineers, pharmacologists, animal care experts, immunologists, and those of us who actually see patients uh, to try to, try to, to, uh, to try it all out. And these are the, the various and sundry agencies that support that work. Now, having said all that, there's a caveat. This is a series of newspaper headlines that talk about this. New machine to aid diabetes, that's the artificial pancreas. Transplants also hope. A congressional report of breakthrough in diabetes research, artificial beta cell, report breakthrough in diabetes treatment, new hope, cures for diabetes on the way. This is what the newspapers talk about and confuse our patients. Because hope and hype differ by only one letter. And although I presented all these things, you've also seen all, a whole many things that have failed up there. And it takes a long time. Particularly so when you look at this slide, this slide was first used at a postgraduate course of the American Diabetes Association in January of 1975. <laughs> That's where this slide comes We are still pursuing the same thing. The time frame for doing this is always hard to predict. And that's, as many of you are clinicians, you know, that's what we, we really need to, to be sure the patients understand, because they think it's going to be here tomorrow. And that's not the case. I was asked in 1984 to give a talk, Diabetes in the Year 2000. I talked about the same kinds of concepts that I talked about today. Not, not the same studies, because they weren't done yet, but what was ongoing at that time, particularly more rodent things. And, you know, it, it, I was in a talk in Melbourne, Australia, and it went over pretty well. And somebody 
who was putting together the International Diabetes Federation meeting 10 years later, 1994, in, uh, uh, in Kobe, in Japan, said, oh, there's this guy smiling, he made this great talk, I'm looking at the future, let's have him talk about diabetes in the year 2000. When I asked me to do that, I said, no way. <laughs> it's six years away. I'll give, the, I'll give a talk on the subject, but let's call it uh, diabetes in, in uh, 2021, 100 years after insulin. Because that gives me a little bit more leeway. People <laughs> might not remember what I said. <laughs> and, um, and so then, uh, then last year I was asked to give a talk, a, a talk predicting the future again. And I said, well, let's call it diabetes in 2030 because the IDF just put out the uh, projection of the number of people for diabetes in 2030. So what? The point is, one has to recognize that this is 1975 and it's the same themes, but one really has to be cautious in how this is presented to patients. We want them to participate in research and be our collaborators in the research uh, process, but we also don't want them to get false hope. I don't know if anybody has seen this week's New England Journal yet. Uh, Jeff Drazen and Karen Solomon have an absolutely fabulous editorial about the problem with the, with the study with the, uh, with the oxygen to premature kids. That if you read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, all these guys were doing the wrong thing in their consent process. And you actually have the consent that you can download at the New England Journal website, and you read their editorial. For the state of the art at the time, everybody was consenting precisely as it should be. And it was only the results of the study, once it was done, that would allow the conclusions that the newspapers were saying uh, made that this was an unethical consent process. And, and I, I, I think it was a, a fabulous way of trying to put to rest some of the, some of the things you read about in newspapers that, that, that give people all the wrong conclusions about what we as scientists do in the research enterprise. And giving false hope, allegedly giving false consent are really problems that I think we as a community do need to stand up for. And I was really glad to see that editorial last night uh, in the New England Journal. Um, but as I look into the future, my favorite artist is the surrealist Bernanke Green. Uh, and this is one of his things. As I look into the future, what I do see is that we are going to be successful in stopping the disease. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know which of these things are going to work. But I think we need to continue to pursue them so we can get there. And I hope that we get there in my lifetime. And thank you for having me. Wow. Thank you, Jay, for a spectacular talk. I think we have time for a few questions. Sure. Any trials have been done with the anti-CD3 that is given the molecule? Yeah, the anti-CD3 has been given on for two courses, in both the delay trial uh, and in the protege trial. Protege uh, didn't see any difference in the group that got one course versus two course. And delay was given uh, a little bit later in starting, and, and it looked like it, it didn't have any, you didn't get any incremental benefit by giving a second course of anti cd unfortunately. Even after public years? No, they only gave it at one year. Yes, sir. You've learned a lot um, from the post gastric white-faced patients about type 2 diabetes. Have those cases of hyperplasia or hypoglycemia given us any insights for type 1 diabetes? Well, it, it does. What, I think what it does show is that, uh, and that's presumably related to incremental secretion that, that increases after the gastric bypass, it does show that the beta cell in adult life is capable of at least having its function restored. 
and perhaps even expanding. I think that's a very important observation. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I changed mass to function on that slide there, because we may be able to, uh, to get beta cells to, uh, to resurrect and start functioning again. And I think that, that needs to be something we think about more and pay more attention to the beta cell than, than perhaps we have in type 1 diabetes, that, that we could perhaps potentially get them to, uh, to, to, re re to at least restore their function. I don't want to use the word regenerate or expand because the data to support that are uh, not, not firm. We've seen in patients uh, type 1 who uh, after delivery, they have a period of two days or so with no needs for insulin. Do you have any explanation? Any maybe increased beta cell pregnancy? There's clearly increased beta cell function at that juncture. I don't know whether that's recovery of beta cells in some way or expansion of beta cells during pregnancy. You know, there are a lot of factors in pregnancy are causing baby. And the mother gets, ex gets exposed to some of the two, whether it's, whether it's some phenomena like that, I, I, I don't know. But, uh, but I think it's a very important observation. Again, it's sort of like the question about uh, the, the, the post-gastric bypass. We know that there's ways to get beta cell function at one time or another to change. And we need to understand those processes better. And uh, you know, I think people have to look into that a lot more. Yes, yes Randy. So, so your conversion to kids, it is very well the onset of disease, but when you detect autoantibodies and you follow them all the way, do you see the autoantibodies present all the way through the onset, or do they, it's just a window of opportunity to detect them? No, the, the, uh, the antibodies wax and wane during time if you follow the kids. They're not always persistent at every moment. And the numbers may go up and down, and the titers may go up and down. But, but the, the autoimmunity appears to persist uh, uh, up until the time at least they develop diabetes. And then after you develop diabetes, it's very interesting. Because if you follow them over time, they, as beta cell function declines, ICA by immunofluorescence declines. You give them insulin. So insulin autoantibodies are no longer relevant. Now you have insulin ant antibodies to, to inject with insulin, which tends to increase over time. And, and GAD and IA2 more or less stay there, but, but gra more gradually than the loss of beta cell function of time. So the, the, the course of these things is, is variable and uh, you know, uh, not completely understood. Do you know what uh, drugs Herring is going to use in the islet xenotransplant trial. I mean, um, I'm very excited about islet xenotransplantation, sure. but I think you have to lose tolerance because he's trying to use Steve so Miller's. He's trying to use Steve Miller's approach. Uh -huh. Always using ECDR. Yes, and they've been collaborating on that, and I think that's what he's going to use. And doing. So he may use induction therapy first, and Steve's approach to try to, to gain the tolerance. Have they got good monkey data with ECDR? I have not seen it, but, I, but he was telling me it looks really good. Uh, but he didn't show me the data itself. Other questions or comments? Okay, thanks.